Amen. Y'all sound great. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? Luke chapter number 15 is where my text comes from today, beginning in verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. Notice the story is not about one particular son. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. He began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, how many of you know that sometimes people go crazy, but if you put the word of God in them, they'll eventually come to themselves, amen? But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring me out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to be merry. Now this older son was out in the field. And as they began to be merry, the older son drew near to the house and he heard the music and the dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and because he has received himself safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. He would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you've never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes or come home, uh, who is devouring your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And then Psalm 107 verse number one, our main text for this scripture. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is and his mercy endures forever. Um, this series that we're doing called Good, Good Father is really all about raising your goodness expectation. We have uh, sometimes been conditioned by life and by religion to believe that God is anything but good. And we struggle in our minds a lot of the time in light of some of the situations that we face, in light of some of the situations that we see to grab hold of the fact that God is good. And this is one of the greatest deceptions of the enemy. He either tries to get us to believe that God doesn't exist, or if we do believe in God, to doubt the goodness of God. Because whenever we doubt the goodness of God, we distance our relationship from the Father. And so what this series is all about is getting you to do what Proverbs chapter 18 verse number, I'm sorry, Proverbs Psalm chapter 27 verse 13 says, it says, I will remain confident in this. 
that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, what we want to help you to do is no matter what your circumstances are, whether they're good or bad, whether you're in sickness or in health, whether you're prospering or whether you're struggling, whether you have victories or you're experiencing defeats, to have an expectation to remain confident because this is the trick of the Christian walk, that no matter what is going on, to believe that no matter what and in the face of whatever, that you will see not in the great by and by, but here in the land of the living, right here on this earth, the goodness of God manifested in your life. And that's why we're doing this series. And so today I want to preach to you, I want to minister to you on the subject, the goodness subject, when God runs. When God runs. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister life and grace to every single person, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. When we come to the text, um, we find... um, something interesting. We find somebody running. And when most of us think about running in relationship to our, our, our um, relationship with the Lord, we think of us running to God. And that's a good thing, by the way. We should run to God. And we, we think about us running to God in prayer and us running to God in worship and us running to God when we have a fear or a need of protection. And the scripture does teach, Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are, are safe. And so it's a good thing for us to run to God. We should. We should run to God every moment, every second, with everything, whether whether we're running to God for wisdom or protection or because we're afraid or feel threatened or because the enemy is messing with our life or we're going through a trial or we're confused or we're hurt. It's a great thing to run to God because that scripture is true. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And when we do run to him, we find safety and we find security. But but the, but we rarely, if we're honest, ever think of God running to us. When we when we when we when we think about this running thing, we we kind of just assume that God is stationary. That God is kind of sitting there and he's waiting on us to come to him. And if we don't move, that nothing's going to change. But when you read through the scriptures, the overwhelming picture you get, a picture that's even greater of us running to God, is of God running to us. And there are so many scriptural examples in Luke chapter 15, verse number four, we find the scripture that says he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. That's God on the run. In John chapter four, verse number four, we find Jesus saying, I have to go through Samaria. And we know from the story that there's a woman there whose life is a wreck. And Jesus is basically saying, I feel compelled. I feel pulled to go to where she is. That's God on the run. So many verses in scripture. Psalm 23, that famous psalm in the message version, verse number 6 says, Your beauty and your love chase after me every day of my life. That's God on the run. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. That's God on the run. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? God comes down in the garden and he calls out to them. That's God on the run. And the hallmark of all scriptures of God on the run is Luke 19, verse number 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those of us that were lost. God is always on the run over and over again. And a lot of times we think, well, we run to God. But the truth of the matter is we run away from God probably more than we run to God. 
And the interesting thing about it is that every time we run away from God, you know what God does? He runs after us. You remember the story of Jonah? Lessons, I call it, lessons from a man who ran. Jonah ran in the complete opposite direction that God told him to. What does God do? God doesn't go, all right, go ahead. God runs after him. He runs after him with the wind. Then he runs after him with a whale. And here's what I think is hysterical. He runs after him with a worm. Isn't that funny? Because worms go real slow. God runs after Jonah with a wind, with a whale, and then with a worm. Why? Because God is hunting us down. God loves David said, where can I go to escape your presence? You know, if I go to the heavens and the highest mountains, you're there. If I make my bed in the lowest parts and even in, in hell, even there, you're there. In other words, David is saying, God, you chase me. You run after me. You run after me when I'm doing good, and you run after me when I'm doing bad. And this is such an amazing revelation of our Father that he's a good good father that he's on the run running to us and in no place in scripture i think do we get a more vivid picture of god on the run than here in luke chapter number 15 it's an amazing amazing story and uh when you come to the story something prompts the story and and by the way um before i say that notice what the story is about the story is is not about one son it is not the story of the prodigal son Matter of fact, the only reason why we think that is because the writers or the interpreters of the Bible or whoever put the printed the Bible together put in there a heading and says the prodigal son. But the way that the verse begins, it says a man had how many sons? Two sons. And so really, if anything, the story should not be about one son. It should be about two sons. But that's not even what the story is about. Because if you read the structure of the sentence, the first sentence, it says a man had two sons. And so who's the story really about? It's about the man. Who is the man? The man is the father. And so the story of the prodigal son is not about how bad the younger son was. It's not about how pious the older son was. It's how this good, good father, this extraordinary father handled, interacted with the younger son, who is this outwardly sinful individual, and the older son, which is this outwardly obedient person, but inwardly is really far from God. And so the story is all about how this good, good father interacts with these two sons, which is our opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to you and I as believers. As believers, you have those that are outwardly defiant, that, you know, they're not really worried about what anybody else thinks, and if they're going to curse, they're going to curse, and if they're going to drink, they're going to drink, and if they're going to, you know, watch this or do that, they're going to do it, and they're not worried about covering it up, and they're just raw, and they're just kind of like, there it is, right? You have those kind of believers, then you have the other believers who they put on their Sunday face, you know, and in church they got their hands up and their eyes closed and everything like that, and they seem like they're obeying all the rules, but in they're far from God because they've made decisions on the inside. Well, you know what? I know that's what the scripture says, but I'm really not going to do that. And and they get these harbor, these bitterness and unforgiveness and all that in their heart. And you have these two opposite ends of the spectrum. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I want you to watch how the father interacts with those two and everybody in between. The story is really about the man. It's really about the good, good father. And what prompts the story is the Pharisees, they're they're hating on Jesus a little bit. They're not hating on Jesus for good reasons. They're hating on Jesus because here's their criticism of he's too nice to sinners. That's really why they hate him. And, And he's so nice to sinners that that he actually is having meal after meal. He's eating with sinners is their big accusation. Why are you eating with sinners? In Bible times, um, the, the Pharisees equated being kind to somebody as not just acceptance but approval. 
And this is something the church has struggled with forever, right? We think that, that kindness, acceptance, means approval. How many of you know God hasn't called us to approve of everybody's behavior, but he's called us to accept everybody? Amen? Right? And so church should be a place where everybody, no matter how bad their sins are, no matter what their issues are, no matter what their struggles are, should feel like is a place that they go where they can feel accepted. But, but if that doesn't mean in that acceptance and in that love, they're always going to get approval for their behavior, right? But the Pharisees thought that by Jesus hanging out with these sinners, and by the word sinners, it is the worst of the worst. It is the people who are doing all of the big bad sins. That by Jesus having dinner with them, he was somehow not just accepting them, but approving of their behavior. And so they, they were hating on Jesus for this. And what I think is amazing is that sinners love Jesus. And I think about this often, and I think, why isn't church full of sinners? It makes me kind of think, are we preaching the right message? Or are we pre- preaching a message that repels sinners? Why, why don't sinners like being around us? You ever wonder that? Most of my friends, by the way, are sinners, and I don't say that to give myself a big pat on the back, but, but I think that's the way it should be. I, I think that we should have a lot of friends. Now, a lot of my inner circle people are saved to the core, right? But a lot of my friends that I do a lot of hanging out with and eating with and so on and so forth, they're, they're sinners, man. And anytime that if you were to like eavesdrop over a conversation with me hanging out with my friends, you'd hear a lot of F-bombs and a lot of like, you know, off-color things and stuff like that. They're just rank sinners. And you don't hear it coming from me, but they're talking about it and, you know, dropping it and so on and so forth. And then you'll hear the occasion, I'm sorry, I know you're a man of God. I shouldn't be saying that in front of you. But there's this, there's just the, the way. And Jesus loved hanging out with sinners. And sinners loved hanging out with Jesus. And so these Pharisees, they are, they are just really hating on Jesus. And here's their accusation. Their accusation is, you're too good to sinners. Why are you being so good to sinners? These people are far from God and you shouldn't be so good. You should be telling them what for. You should be telling them how they should behave. You should be telling them this. And Jesus was like guilty as charged. I know I hang out with sinners too much, right? And, and what's interesting is as the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus, the sinners are hearing the criticism because they're hanging around Jesus. And so Jesus goes, let me tell you a little story. And the story is aimed at both the Pharisees, but it's also being told for the benefit of the sinners and the Pharisees. And he says, there was this man, he had these two sons, and the younger one, and he's representative of the sinners. The younger one, he did everything bad. He went to his father one day and he said, Father, I want the, your inheritance. Give me, give me my inheritance. Give me the inher- inheritances due me. And now in Bible times, the, everybody listening, all the Pharisees knew that, 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 that this was the height of disrespect because to ask your father for your, his, your inheritance while he was still alive meant that you wanted your father dead. And so as the Pharisees are listening to this, they're going, oh, I can't believe this person. They said to their father, Father, give me everything that you have for me, but I don't want any relationship with you. I want you dead, but I want everything you have. And if that shocks you, it shouldn't because that's the condition of the church these days. Father, I'll take healing, but you can't have my heart. Father, I'll take all your treasure, but you can't have my tithe. God, God, I'll take, I'll, I, I'll take, you know, um, all the wealth you have me, but I won't give you my worship. God, God, I'll take all of the wisdom that you can give me, all the comfort you can give me, but when church is convenient, I'll show up. I mean, this is the condition of the modern day church. We want everything that God has, but we want it on our terms, and we don't want to do what God asked us to do, but we expect to be blessed, and we expect, and all that kind of stuff. And so, and so this is what this boy is doing. He's saying, Father, I want everything you have, but I don't want any relationship with you. And the father gives him 
divides an inheritance between the younger son and the older son because there was only two. The younger son got one-third. The older son got two-thirds because the older son always got a double portion. And you know the story. The younger son takes his inheritance, and he goes out, and he blows it on all the big sins. Wine, women, and song. Partying. My girl likes to party all the time. Party all the time. Party all the time. (laughs) Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Go listen to some radio every now and again. Anyway. He goes out and he parties, wine, women, and song. And he's really having this just amazingly great time. And then he, he loses everything. And he's broke. And he needs to go get a job. And the only job he can get is a job feeding pigs, which is an affront to his Jewish roots. And all of a sudden, he gets this thought in his head. And this thought in his head is, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father's house. And I'll say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I want to earn my way back into your good graces. Now, the Pharisees are hearing this story, right? And they're kind of tracking with Jesus. And they're like, all right, finally, Jesus, some truth is coming out of you. Because we know exactly what's coming now. We know this is exactly what we think of sinners. Sinners are this bad. They do all these bad things. And then they decide to come back. And they know from a cultural mindset that if a boy did these kind of things and he decided to come back home, the father wouldn't accept him. Matter of fact, the father would punish him. And because of what this boy did, The father would allow the community to stone the boy to death. There was no way that the boy could ever earn his way back into relationship in the family again. And so the Pharisees are hearing Jesus tell this story. And they're like, right on, Jesus. I don't know what caused you to wake up. Maybe it was us hating on you a little bit. But finally, some truth is coming out of you. And they know we know what's going to happen. This father, this boy comes back home. This father's going to get him. He's going to get stoned to death. And that's exactly what should happen to sinners. Because they actually had a saying that there's joy in the presence of God over one sinner who is removed from the earth. That was the Pharisee saying, which is totally the opposite of what Luke chapter 15 says. There's joy in the presence of God over one sinner that repents, right? So their belief was just the opposite of what God really expected or really God's God's heart in the situation. So the Pharisees are expecting this boy is going to come home and notice what he wants to be. He wants to be a hired servant. In Bible times, there were three groups of servants. There were bond servants, And these were the highest servants of all. And by the way, servants in Bible times was not the same as slavery. It was not like forced. It was you could actually voluntarily do it. And you can voluntarily be let go. But in any case, they had these bond servants. And they were like part of the family. And they they were kind of servants, but not really because they had family rights. And then underneath the bond servants, what were they called? Servant servants. They took their orders from the bond servants. And and they were kind of like outskirts of the family. But then there was the lowest of the low hired servants. And these were day laborers. These are people that would come and they would work around. They could be let go at any time. And in order for them to stay, they had to work real real hard and earn their way. And notice this boy, he wants to come back as a hired servant. And the Pharisees are listening to this and they're going, no way. It's impossible. Never. You cannot get back. You can't work your way back after everything that this boy did. And so Jesus continues. And he says, and the son decides to come home. And the the, the Pharisees are going, all right, we know what's going to happen. And the father sees him a great way off. And the Pharisees are going, I know what happened. The father ran out. Rocks in his hands, the community charging with him, and they just pummeled the boy. And Jesus says, and the father saw him a great way off. And the father had compassion on him. Listen to what Jesus said. And he ran to him. 
and put his arms around him and he hugged him and he kissed him. And he did just the opposite of what the Pharisees thought. This father doesn't run to punish him. This father doesn't run to get him. This father runs and he hugs him and he kisses him. And by now the Pharisees are having a religious conniption. They're like, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? How could you make it that this father doesn't punish this boy? How could you make it that this father doesn't give him the what for? How could you make it that this father doesn't whip him? This boy did the unthinkable. This boy did something that could never be forgivable. Some of you are here. And maybe you've done some things you think, I can never be forgiven. Listen up, because that's a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing we could ever do that can cause God to not forgive us if we ask him to through Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees are having this religious conniption. And the sinners, you know what they're doing? They're crying. They're going, we love this dude. This dude's the best. This is why we love him, because everybody else wants to stone us and criticize us and tell us this and point out our sins. But this guy wants to love us to a place of wholeness. And Jesus is teaching some powerful things here about why God runs. And the first thing he teaches us about why God runs is that God runs simply because he loves us. God runs simply because he loves us. This dad didn't run to get the boy back. This this dad didn't run to get even, to whip the boy, to yell at the boy. This dad ran to hug and love and kiss the boy. God runs to us because he loves us. It is that simple. He loves us with an everlasting love. His love for us is greater than our greatest sin. His love for us knows no limits, has no bounds. His love for us is, is so great that there's nothing that we could ever do to get God to stop loving us. I used to tell my kids, and I still do occasionally, there's nothing you can ever do. Spit my face, disgrace me, curse me, come out of the closet, hide in the closet, whatever it is. There's nothing you could ever do that could cause me to stop loving you. Look, some of the Pharisees went like this when I said, come out of the closet. They said, you're not supposed to, that's the one category of people you're not supposed to love. See the problem with the church? Just don't know the, dif- the difference between acceptance, love, and approval. Just don't know the difference. Jesus did. And so there's nothing that we can ever do. It doesn't really matter what we do. God is always, always, always going to love us. And this dad, he ran simply because he loved his boy. And his love was so amazing. His love was so incredible. And the Pharisees are going, yeah, but Jesus, this is not the way the story is supposed to go. The father is not even supposed to run in Bible times. Great men, aristocratic, wealthy men would never run. Matter of fact, you've heard me say this before. Aristotle put it like this. He said, great men never run. No kings go down to where their subjects are. What happens? The king sits on the throne. The subjects approach, and if the king offers them his invitation, then they come. And when they come, they bow down before the king. No king goes to where the people are. That's considered to be below the king. But for love, our king left heaven and came to earth. But for love, our king left everything and went to the cross. But for love, our king came and took on our humanity. But for love, he paid a debt he did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. This is the kind of love of our father. And he's a good, good father. And his love covers all. The Bible puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. It says, love never fails. Verse number 13 says, and now abideth these three faith." Hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Think about this for a minute. Faith is amazing. With the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Hope is amazing. Where there's hope, there's life. 
I said, Pastor, no, it's where there's life, there's hope. No, no, no. It's where there's hope, there's life. If you have no hope, you stop living. But if you have hope, you just keep on and keep on. Hope will cause you to persevere. Hope will cause you to keep fighting. Hope will cause you to hang in there for a little while longer. Hope is great and faith is great. But here's what the Bible says. Love is greater than both of those things. Why? Because there's going to come a day. We're not going to need faith anymore. We'll see him face to face. We're not going to need hope anymore. We're going to be standing in the presence of eternal hope. But at that time, there's only going to be one thing that exists. It's love. And here's how I picture that, that, that great meeting day. I know, you know, we've all imagined it. The song I can only imagine, phenomenal song, because we've all imagined it. But I bet you there's going to be a lot of people who when they see Jesus, they fall down. And at first they think, oh, no, what's he going to break up? <laughs> Is he going to embarrass me in front of everybody? Is he going to bring up all my faults and failures? If I would have known I was going to die, I wouldn't have did that two minutes before I died. <laughs> Yesterday wasn't my best day, and here I am right here for the throne. What's he going to say? And you know what I believe Jesus is going to do? He's not going to yell. He's not going to scream. Our father's just going to take his arms. He's going to wrap him around. He's going to say, my son, my daughter's come home. See, you know, to us, death is, is a sorrowful thing, and rightfully so, but in God's eyes, it's precious. Precious in the sight of God is the death or the passing of his saints because his son, his daughter, has come home again. See, the greatest of these things is love. And here's what I want you to picture in your mind. No matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in life, no matter what your struggle is, what your fight is, I don't want you to picture God, you know, with his arms crossed and his, his, his foot just tapping and his face scra- uh, uh, growling. I want you to picture God on the run, running towards you. Why? Because just because he loves you. Jesus is teaching us and he's saying, number two, God, God runs when we're in trouble. Remember that boy? The father knew that 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 boy was going to be stoned if he came too close to the community. Because when people go and do bad things and everybody knows about him and they come back, oftentimes instead of receiving a welcome, they receive stones. Sounds like the church again, doesn't it? Pastor. Hold on a second. You ran into them at the bar. It's like the woman caught in adultery. Wait a second. You caught somebody in adultery? Hold on, hold on, hold on. You was peeking in their window? Why are you peeking in their window? Wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Wait a second. I know you want to talk about the adultery, but let's talk about the voyeurism here for just a little moment. Pastor, I'm not sure that they really ought to be part of that team. You know, they've been away from church for quite some time, and they walk in here, and it's like it never even happened before. Why are we treating them like this? Shouldn't they earn their spot? <laughs> church rocks. That's how it happens. And this, this father knew. This father knew that if this boy came too close to the community, then he was going to be stoned. So what does the father do? I know he ran because he loved. 
But he also ran and he wrapped his arms around that child. And you know what I think that father was doing? He was saying, son, we're going to walk back together. And you know what? There might be some rocks that come our way. Because not everybody likes a happy ending. Not everybody wants it to turn out good. Not everybody wants to see you blessed. Not everybody wants to see you happy. There are some people that in order to handle their misery want somebody else to be miserable. So out are going to come the rocks. But guess what, son? There ain't no rock that's going to hit you. Because I'm going to get in the way of your rock. I'm just going to walk you back home safely and if that bothers you you have no understanding of what Jesus did on the cross because on the cross he got in the way of your rocks our father our father runs to show us mercy what is mercy mercy is withholding from us what we deserve everybody knew this boy deserved punishment Pharisees knew it. The boy knew it. The sinners listening knew it. Everybody knew it. The elder brother knew it. But instead the father running to punish him, he runs to show him mercy. Listen to what Psalm 107 again said. This is part of the goodness of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. There's a whole bunch of scriptures maybe even in your notes about God's mercy. But listen to this last one. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. A lot of us think it says slow to mercy and great in anger. A lot of us think that God's first move is to get us. That God is sitting up there, arms crossed and foot, you know, tapping and face growling at us, waiting for us to do something wrong. Bam, just what I was waiting for, an opportunity to smite you. Scripture says God is slow to anger. But I like this. He's, he's great in mercy. You know what the word great in Hebrew means? It means loud in mercy. Yeah. Loud. It's like, Pastor, why are they on the front line? God, I don't understand why. I, I have a good voice too, God. God's like, I know. But that's a loud mercy statement, isn't it? <laughs> See, God, God likes to be loud. God likes to, God likes to take those who, who the world discards and everybody overlooks and thinks that have been disqualified. And God likes to make a loud statement of mercy with them. See, this is God. He runs to show us mercy. Don't get that last scripture twisted. He's a good, good father. He runs to show us mercy. And this is hard for us to comprehend because we're so used to stuff being earned and deserved and mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve and it kind of rocks our world. It kind of gives us a pharisaical conniption. But then number three, what's even more difficult to fathom is that God runs not only to show us mercy, but he also runs to give us grace. Not only does the father run to the boy and not give him what he deserves, but he runs to the boy and he gives him what he doesn't deserve. Mercy, God giving us or withholding from us what we do deserve. Grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, right? He runs to the boy and not only does he protect him against the judgment that is due him, that he deserves, but then he says, put a ring on his finger. You know that ring was blinging, right? Like an Italian pinky ring, lots of little stones on it like that. The boy was like, check me out right here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Gucci robe, you know, nice. The fatted calf. In other words, everybody's having filet mignon at Chateaubriand today. This is a, this is a celebration. This is, and then he gives us some sandals, and I'm like, which one of these things doesn't belong? Right? Sandals? I'm like, if I opened up for like my birthday, 
well, Christmas, my anniversary sandals, I'd be like, why y'all get me sandals? I don't like sandals, you know? But he gave him sandals because, you know, the only type of servants that didn't have shoes in Bible times? Hired servants. And the boy said, what? He said, I'm going to go back. I'm going to be a hired servant. You know what the dad said? I don't know. Before we get this twisted right here, you're not coming back to earn your way back into my good favor because you're my child. You're my son. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work hard for it. I want you to know from the moment you step foot back on the property again, you are my child. All God's children got some shoes. I'm going to give you what is yours in Christ. You don't have to earn it, work for it. It's yours by inheritance. See, God runs to give us not just mercy, but he he runs to show us grace. He throws him a party. And just like the Bible talks a whole lot about mercy, it talks a whole lot about grace. Let me read you one scripture. Luke chapter 4, verse number 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. um, The day in which salvation and the favor of God abounds greatly. And now 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, these two scriptures speak specifically of an extraordinary event that took place that changed what I would call the cycle of favor in the Bible. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll notice that favor was cyclical. If you can picture a favor faucet, that God would sometimes turn on the favor faucet, the goodness faucet, and sometimes turn it off. That God's kids would be enjoying the favor of God, favor faucet on. They would take the favor of God for granted. They would start worshiping other gods. They would stray away from God. God would get angry with them. He'd turn the favor faucet on. And then them and God would off. Then them and God would be apart for a season. God would miss them. God would send a prophet to them to call them back to repentance. They would repent. They'd get right with God. God would turn the favor faucet back on. And then the cycle would repeat itself on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off here's the problem we still think we live in an on-off favor faucet cycle and so that's how we live our relationship with God but these two verses speak to a significant event that changed the favor cycle that turned the favor cycle on once and for all until the end of this age or the age of grace. You say, what was that cycle? Well, in the old covenant, when the people sinned, what would God do? He would turn away. Do you remember the last time God turned away? It's when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face from Jesus because he couldn't look upon sin. But after Jesus paid the price for that sin, God turned his face back on Jesus. And he turned his face back towards humanity. And he turned the favor faucet on once and for all, never to be turned off again. Why? Because favor is not performance-based. It's promise-based. In other words, this favor that you and I, this, this, this God wanting to bless us doesn't happen because we performed good. God doesn't want to give us favor because we behave and not give us favor because we don't behave. Although there is something to be said about obeying the will of God, but that's not my point right now. It's not based on our works 
we get, and we've talked about this before, the reason why we get mercy is because Jesus' death was credited to our account. So God withholds judgment. The reason why we get favor is because Jesus' life is credited to our account. It's not our works, it's his works. And so God is able to freely give us all good things, not because we're good, but because God, because Jesus is good. And because Jesus is good, he remains a good, good father. Favor faucet turned on all the time. Let me explain it to you this way. A lot of people think that that, um, favor is like frequent flyer programs for airlines. That if you log enough miles on faith and good works airline that you qualify for good things. And, and, and the reason why you, you get the best seats is because you have miles. The reason why you get to skip the whole line because you got miles. The reason why you got access to the lounge is because you got miles. That's how we think that the kingdom of God works. Can I tell you how it really works? It works more like you're flying with somebody who's a platinum frequent flyer. And when you fly with somebody who's a platinum frequent flyer, if they want to, they don't have to, but they, they can choose to. If they want to take some of their points and put it onto your account, then what happens is because of their status, you get the good seat. And because of their status, you get to go into the airport lounge. And because of their status, you get to skip the whole line. And here's what God wants us to know. It's not because of our status that God comes running to give us good things. It's because of Jesus' status that we get all the good things that heaven has to offer. God runs to give us grace. He runs to give us good things. You know, uh, I heard this little joke. I think it's, it's, it's a powerful little lesson. This man, he dies, and he meets, of course, St. Peter at the gate. I don't know how St. Peter got that job, you know, just St. Peter at the gate. He says to the guy, he says, okay, he says, we're going to play a little game. You tell me something you did in your life that was good, and I'll give you points. If you get enough points, 100 points, you get to come into heaven. So the guy's like, all right. She said, been married to the same woman for 50 years. St. Peter says, three points. <laughs> he said, three points? Do you know what it was like to live with that woman for 50 years? St. <laughs> Peter said, let's go, next one. The guy said, well, I went to church every single week, supported the church with my service and with my tithes. St. Peter says, two points. Two points. You know what it's like to sit through that man's sermons every single week? How is hard? Two points. See, what else you got? He said, well, I wasn't going to say nothing, you know, because I did this as on to the Lord. But he said, every week I, I got up early and I had a soup kitchen, paid for it with my own money, fed the homeless and clothed them and all that kind of stuff. St. Peter said, one point. He said, one point. He says, at this rate, the only rate, way I'm going to be able to get into the kingdom is by the grace of God. You know what St. Peter said? Come on in. Come on in. It's not our points. It's not our points. It's not our points. It's Jesus' account. God runs to show us favor because of what Jesus did. God is on the run. God is on the run. He runs to us to show us grace. He runs to us to give us mercy. He runs to us because he loves us. He runs to us when we're in trouble. And then lastly, God runs to us because he doesn't want us to be left, left out. By now, the Pharisees, they're, they're just beside themselves. They're like, we've got to kill this guy now. Can't get this guy's anyway. He's, he's messing everything up. And Jesus turns his attention from the sinner to the Pharisee. Because the man had how many sons? So we just talked about the younger son, but can I talk to you about the older son, Jesus said. 
The older son came home. He saw there was this great party going on. He asked what was going on. Somebody told him, well, the brother came home and your father's killed the fatted calf and they're having a big party. And, and you know what the younger son does? He stands outside the party, crosses his arms, pouts. Said, I ain't going into the party. Sounds like church again, right? Somebody bothers you, I ain't going to church. If I'm going to pout about it, how am I going to pout about it? I'm going to put it on Facebook. Can I, I, I've said this to you before. Can I just be your pastor for a second? If you're putting all your business on Facebook, you need attention. You, you're starving for attention. And that's the only reason why people put all the business on Facebook. If you need attention, go to somebody and talk to somebody for the attention. You know, put it on Facebook. Facebook is, Facebook is our society's way of pouting. Right? I'm going to tell everybody my, what I feel about that. <laughs> so the boy says, or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is that you use, right? And so he said, I'm going to stand outside and pout. Now, here's the problem with this. In Bible times, if you were an elder brother, there were certain family responsibilities that you had. One was that you were a family representative. And so if your dad had a big party, guess what you were supposed to do? You were supposed to be a co-host. You know, imagine you having a big party around your house. How many got older kids, right? Kids that are capable. The big party around the house, right? What do you expect from them kids? Get off your lazy rear end and pick up with me, you know? Come on now. Go, I need the grass cut. I need the garbage taken out right here. I need this set up and go get me a table and go get me some chairs. And you expect, participate, man. Get off that couch before I come down then. Anyway. <laughs> when Bible times, if you were the older child, you expected to be the co-host. How's that drink? You need some more? Can I get you some more iced tea? Because we don't serve anything but iced tea at the ch- church parties. Everybody got enough to eat? Need some more food? You, you're a co-host. If you had a disagreement with your family, you were expected to put that aside, put a smile on your face, and represent. Represent the family that particular day. And what does this do? He stands outside and pouts. What's he doing? He's disgracing his dad. You know when your kid acts up in front of other people? You, what do you want to do? Yeah, yeah, wait. And you give him that one little look. He's like, I'm going to get you later. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. And then here's the other thing is, as an older brother in Bible times, you were given more inheritance, not because you were loved more, but you knew as the older child that it was your responsibility to take care of the siblings. And when your father passed on, you would have to do that at your expense. And so you got more up front because to whom much is given, much is required. And so what ha- should have happened is when the younger brother went off and started acting like a fool and word got back, the older brother should have went to the dad and said, Dad, I know that Junior has broken your heart and I know that Junior has disgraced the family, but I'm going to take my responsibility as the older brother and I'm going to go out there on the streets and I'm going to look for them wherever they are and I'm going to pull them out of whatever mess they're in and I'm going to bring them home and I know it's going to cost me, but I'll do it at my own expense because that's why I've been entrusted with much. Remember back in the day when families are like that? You mess with somebody, you better know who their brothers and sisters were. Because you knew if you mess with one person, you were messing with the whole family. Bible times, the older brother would take care of it. I have two younger sisters, don't mess with my sisters. 
I'd be like, you know, the boys come over to the house and stuff like that. Ain't nobody watching TV by yourself. Forget that. <laughs> uh-uh, I'm going to sit right there. Coming, coming, coming down for snacks a lot. And being, being quiet about it. I'm not going to make myself know. I'm going to sneak up, make sure you ain't doing something. I might, nowadays, I'd have cameras in the room on you. Yeah. What does this older brother do? Pouch. Disgraced his father wouldn't be an older brother. What's he deserve? He deserves punishment. What's his father do? He runs out. The Bible says he leaves the party and he pleads with him. What's he doing? He's running. He's not just running to younger brothers who are outwardly defiant. He's running to older brothers who are looking at everybody else going, I don't understand why they're blessed, God. I've been here the whole time, and you ain't blessing me. I don't know why you got to bless them. And God's running out. He should backhand you and say, stop being so pious. But what he does, he withholds the judgment because the same mercy that he gives to younger brothers, he gives to you. But not only that. He pleased it. He said, come on into the party yourself. Everything I have is yours. Same grace he offers to the younger brother. He offers to the older brother. And here's the last point. God comes running because he doesn't want us to be left out. What is really powerful about this story is when you realize the younger brother is the Pharisee. I mean, rewind. The older brother is the Pharisee. The ones that criticized him. The ones that are planning his death. And to these, Jesus doesn't end the story with a harsh rebuke. He ends the story with offering these people the same kind of goodness that he offers to the sinner. What's the story about? The story is about our good, good father who's so good. No matter what side of the spectrum you fall on, he runs to you to show you his goodness. What I really love about the story is that Jesus masterfully leaves a true elder brother out of the story. Makes a Pharisee the elder brother. And you know why he does this? He does this because he wants us to put two and two together. He wants us to ask the question, why would the father run? And, and what he does is he takes the common answers off the table. He runs because I'm that good. He's like, no, off the table. He runs because I've been obedient. Off the table. He runs because I'm really religious. <clears throat> off the table. I don't get it, God. Why, why would you run? Why would you run to show me goodness? And the answer is because of your true elder brother. Because your true elder brother didn't just go to a faraway country to look and search for you. He left heaven and came to earth. He ran all the way from heaven to earth to search for you. Your true elder brother didn't just do it as a, at a portion of his inheritance. He didn't just give up a little of what he had in order to bring you back. He laid down everything he had to bring you back. He laid down his life. He laid down his, his deity. He took on our humanity. Your true elder brother did it all for you at his own expense. Why? So that the father could run to you and show you goodness. And the point of the whole story is to make you realize how good the Father is because of Jesus. If you want to experience God's goodness, what you need more than anything else is to get in Christ. That is the place where goodness is released. 
in your life. Would you stand to your feet?